The reason I'm a little late is because I put my bulletin back in my chair, which wasn't smart, because that's what I was going to read scripture from. Can I borrow yours? Thanks. Can you have it back? I don't know. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies, and I ask you please to show us who you are, what you've done, and how we should live, we pray through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened an animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to their own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over all Israel to the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Amen. As promised. I don't know if you're going to take notes or what. So, so uh, I, have, uh, I have aftermarket hips, which uh, I'm, I'm fixing in, in the fall to get aftermarket shoulder. So um, I picked the wrong parents or played the wrong sports. I don't know. But I have to go through the, the Zoomer thing, you know, when I come over here. And a few weeks ago, I was wearing a sweater with a little zipper on it, so they needed to, the guy needed to pat me down. And I came out, and, he, and maybe you've been patted down, but uh, he raises his hands, he goes, I need to pat you down, and I, I, I want to ask, do you have any tender spots or wounds? And I looked at him and said, well, emotionally... And he said, don't we all? <laughs> and then they cleared me through security. And don't we all? So I want you to think, um, think about yours this morning. And I want to think about those wounds that, um, even as they come to mind, harden you a little bit. 
and um, make you bitter. And I want us to realize something about human nature and about ourselves. That for all of our talk of joy, we actually love bitterness more than joy. It's perhaps the most satisfying of emotions, the most vivid and real, the most energizing, the most righteous. See, joy refreshes our heart, but bitterness lets us keep our pride. That was Michael's problem, and that's why Michael cursed herself. That's really the curse of the bitter. They They're presented with another way to live, another way to feel, the hope of redemption for all that's wounded them, but they choose to curse themselves. So I want to look at the curse of the bitter, and then I want to look at the cure for the bitter. But I want you to hold in your heart and your mind that wound that is most acute, deepest, uh, maybe even especially from the church, from the people of God, from a pastor, from a friend, I want you to think about that. And I want you to ask yourself if you're ready to live without it. So the first thing we learn of when we learn about the curse of the bitter is that the bitter have good reasons. Certainly, Michael has good reasons. I say not just reasons, most of the wounds, not all of them, but most of the wounds that make me bitter are really wounds. They're true offenses. I've been disregarded or slandered or attacked or whatever else. Certainly Michael has. We're told twice in the first book of Samuel that she loved David. Here's a woman that loved the man that she ended up spending her life with eventually. It was during David's ascendancy. He was the hero of Israel. I think it's probably true that David himself had at least strong feelings for Michael before the intervening providence confused and and, uh, that relationship and separated them. He was offered another daughter by Saul um, to marry, and he wanted nothing to do with it. But Michael, he actually went and fought a battle for her affections to win her over. David um, has some affection for her, but, but Michael was swept into her father's jealousy. I'm listening to a book on Catherine the Medici, and um, I've realized that like the worst life you could ever live was to be a royal in the 16th century. It was miserable. You were always getting married over to someone you didn't care about so some war could be averted or another one could be won. That's what happened to Michael. She just becomes a pawn in this geopolitical, theopolitical reality of Saul trying to hold on to his kingdom. And he, he took her from David after David had to flee because Saul was trying to kill him and gave him to somebody named Apaltiel. And then David goes on and he marries a woman named Abigail and some others. And then he gets some concubines. And then he starts to have children. And this woman is separated as a pawn of politics is separated from the man she loves, given to someone else, and then the man she loves moves on with his life. And it only got worse after Saul died. Ishbosheth wanted to marry her so he could establish his right to Saul's throne. 
And it was, listen to this. This is probably the most painful part of the story of Michael's bitterness. And what I'm trying to help us understand is that I'm not minimizing bitterness and neither is this account. Listen to this. Um, when, when David ascended, he said, I will make a covenant with you about the people to be their king. But one thing I require of you is that you shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So still, she's even reunited with David. She's still being summoned, not wooed, not invited, but summoned. And listen to this. And Ishbosheth, who was giving up his claim to the throne, sent and took her from her husband. Do you remember Paltiel? But her husband went with her weeping. That's a pathetic, tragic scene. Anyone in this room, despite what happens, and I think including God, at the end of this account, should have compassion about how much natural woundedness and bitterness would be embedded in a soul. But you probably don't need to go too far for compassion because you or someone you know has an equal measure, a, another narrative, a real account of the kind of betrayal and woundedness and um, severe sovereignty and problematic, painful providence that Michael has. If I stopped, I could probably pause 20 or, or name and paused. I could name 20 or 30 people in my life and ministry, 50 who have stories like Michael's. You might have a story like Michael's. Your pain is real. The message of this passage and sermon is only that it's not ultimate. So we have our reasons. The second thing we learn is that bitter, the bitter are alone. This is an epic moment. Last time I was here, we saw that David, after some significant missteps that caused a man his life, um, learned his lessons and was now bringing the ark of God to the city of David, to Jerusalem, as the, the crowning moment of his reign. All of Israel is gathered again. We saw last week that they're doing it properly this time. And the priests are carrying the ark. And they've made a sacrifice, as we read earlier. And they're dancing and singing. The streets are filled with joy. This is David's moment, but not just that. This is Israel's moment. This really is the consummation of the promise that brought them up out of Egypt. And the promise that that Joshua started to fulfill and the promise that the judges then uh, maintained over and over again. This is the moment and the streets are filled with celebration. Except for Michael, whose bitterness has put her on a perch. She's looking through a window. And why? Because she's the only one who understands what's really happening. She's the only one who's not fooled 
by this ark and its God and this king and his kingdom. Bitterness becomes a social force field by which we isolate ourselves. In um, a short series of short stories by Joyce called The Dubliners, there's one called A Painful Case, which you, if you read it, it's a painful case, but it's about Mr. James Duffy. Listen to this. Mr. James Duffy lived in Chapel Izod because he wished to live as far as possible from the city of which he was a citizen. He had neither companions nor friends, church nor creed. He lived his spiritual life without any communion with others, visiting his relatives at Christmas and escorting them to the seminary when they died. He performed these two social duties for old dignity's sake, but concealed nothing, conceded nothing further to the conventions which regulate the civic life. Such is the isolation of the bitterness. And it does isolate us from the joy and celebration of almost all things. Because there's that part of us, that part of me, in the midst of the celebration, in the singing and the song, wants satisfaction for my bitterness. I believe what I feel more than I believe what God has done. Life is too important for you and me to believe everything we feel. Maybe especially those things we feel most deeply. Here's a line from another sermon, not today, but I give it to you free of charge. Life is also too important to believe everything you think. But bitterness isolates us. We um, want to get as far away from the city in which we live as possible. That's why so many um, isolate themselves from church and call themselves still Christians. And, And surely many of them are. But as I think I've said before here, the church is not Rivendell. It's full of people that will hurt you. And you will hurt them. And you will all hurt each other. And then you'll have a potluck. And then you'll sit there and you'll say to yourself, why am I having a potluck with all these people that hurt me? And they'll be looking at you and saying, why am I having a potluck with that person that hurt me? And then somebody else will say, we're Presbyterians, we don't have potluck. We have pot providence. (laughs) That's the way this place is. But if you hold your bitterness, you'll have to be isolated because you'll be hard. This is the next thing I want us to learn about that. There's a hardness, a harshness in her that might be explained by the severity and the bruising of her life, but can't be excused by it. This is what we read. This is the first time she speaks since chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. And just before she speaks, we're told that she watches through the window and she despised him in her heart. She 
She only leaves her perch of isolation long enough to meet David at his residence, at their residence, to tell him how much contempt she has for him. That's the only thing that got her down. She confronts David with uh, sarcastic abuse. The language that she uses, perhaps, maybe understandably, um, about his lewdness, supposed, um, is born of the offense at his later marriages, how she just moved on. Um, His unkingly deportment, the language she uses, uh, references, or can be used as a reference to uh, cultic male prostitutes in ancient times. So she's letting him have it. And interestingly, in this moment, when she fully declares herself and how she feels about her husband, about the king, at this moment, she's closest to the one who can, who can bless her in God's instrumentality, who can, who can reverse this and give her a, a different thing to see, a different way to live. But she can't see him. She can't see what's happening. Her heart's too hard. Her reasons are too good. Her soul is too isolated. And so this is why the bitter curse themselves. This passage ends with this sort of resounding boom that Michael had no children. It's an abrupt stop. There's hardly an off-ramp to this. There is no off-ramp to this. It's just a dead end. So who cursed her? Well, it's hard to say that David cursed her, except in a proximal way when David was living his life as best he could on the run and exercising his dominion as he could and would and perhaps should but didn't do well all the time as a king. Because David came to bless her. David came to his house. Do you remember the language of our passage? David came to bless his household, just as David had blessed Israel. So perhaps Yahweh cursed her. Well, Yahweh is sitting enthroned between the cherubim in the ark as it marches into Jerusalem around the singing of God's people. He's receiving the offerings of the priests. He's reconciled and revealing himself and establishing his presence right in the middle of God's people. And every blessing David gave, whether to Israel or to his household that day, was a blessing he was receiving from God. So it's hard to imagine that God cursed her Unless he does sometimes what he has said that he will do, that he curses us by giving us what we want. And she wants to be wounded, and she wants to be alone, and she wants her reasons to matter, and she wants what she feels to be truer than who God is and what he says. 
And so whether she never had a child because David could never bring himself to be with her again or because they were together and she never was able to conceive, we don't know. But the clear implication of the text is that she made her choice. She believed her own bitterness. Just like you have. Just like I have. Just like everyone in my family has. Just like everyone in the world has. I am never so convinced of anything as when I have been offended. And you might be the same way. You know, there's something called fleeting blindness. And it can happen for a number of reasons. Um, blood vessels and stuff. I, was, I know there's some doctors here, so I, I won't quote Wikipedia that I looked up this morning. Okay, I'm not going to do that to you. Um, but I do know in, in the 70s, from a different article I read, in the 70s, some refugees from the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia were blind, although nothing was wrong with their eyes because they had seen such terrible things that their brain shut off the registration of the light that hit their eyes. It's been documented in other places too. And so maybe, maybe your bitterness has not made you blind, or maybe it has, but maybe it has made you so nearsighted that you and I would need to get so close to Christ to see him so near to us that we could imagine that he could make all of our sorrows not smaller as in less, but smaller as in less than the grace and goodness that God will bring from them. So how do the bitter find health? Let's look at the cure of the bitter. And the first one is, the first is abdication. David gives as good as he gets in this story, doesn't he? It's not a pleasing scene. It's not a pleasing scene. I just read last night the argument between, uh, in, in the great Gatsby between Tom Buchanan and Daisy. Sorry to get to all sort of esoteric, but they had a big, ugly argument right in the middle of like a dinner party. And like I was thinking, like, that looks like my family, like when I grew up. That's like Thanksgiving at my house. And, and we're, we're led into this scene um, and David looks right at her and goes, oh, you want to know who I was dancing in front of? You can tell David is not exactly tender here. I was dancing in front of the Lord who chose me and my family over you and yours. That's pretty severe. It's also pretty true. And I don't know if he said it with that tone. I imagine he didn't. Maybe he did. But, but the only way, the first way for her to escape her bitterness is to abdicate her family's dominion. Who else did this? Well, she has an example. Remember her brother Jonathan, the great Jonathan, who gave up all of his robe and <coughs> all of his honor to God and said, oh, I'm going to be at your right hand. You're going to be the king. That's where she needs to begin. To understand that the claim that she had to comfort and peace and life and hope was abdicated 
because of the fallen line that she was part of. Now, that's a hard thing to say to people in the West who have an assumption of what we believe we, know, we, we deserve. But as children of Adam and Eve, our line too, all of us, has been rejected. Jesus died because you don't deserve anything. And he wanted you to have it anyway. So abdication of our claims to a life that goes this way, not that way, to comfort instead of consternation, to pleasure instead of pain, all of our expectations of that need to be held up as offerings in prayer, not demands, because God will do whatever he pleases. And that, of course, um, requires humility, which is the second healing balm that cures the bitter. David gives himself as an example in both of these. First, he says, I'm king and my family's king and your family won't be. And then he says, oh, you think that was bad? You think me dancing in an ephod embarrassed you? Wait till you see me give myself in reckless abandon to God. Wait till you see me dance and celebrate recklessly. Wait till you see me, Michael, prove that I am not a Presbyterian. Wait till you see that. This is one of the challenges of, uh, of giving up our bitterness is that the, especially, if I may speak from experience of my own life and observation as a pastor, relinquishing our bitterness um, invites the vulnerability of joy and celebration that kind of, by its very nature, shames us. Because it, rem- it, it teaches us in that very moment of moving away from our hard, isolated, entitled bitterness to the celebration of dance and joy and thankfulness that uh, we had overestimated our own sorrows. We had evaluated them as greater than God, and now I'm happy. Have you ever been happy after you were bitter and then you feel a little foolish, both for being happy and because you were just bitter? It's humility. It's humility before what you feel. And a couple more things to cure the last one most important, but this one worthwhile. We need to see through the right things. I think Boise is the same way, but I live in Seattle where everyone is too hip to be happy. Like the most uncool thing possible is to be satisfied with your city and your life and whatever else. Because we are so smart that we see through the hypocrisy of everything and everyone except ourselves. Now, in case you think I'm digging on Seattle and you're good with that, that's true of everywhere and everyone. You know, the, the 
It's easy to see how the world can never be fixed, how your life can never be fixed, how you were offended and judged and rejected unfairly. It's easy to see that. That takes no wisdom, no skill. It only takes open eyes. But think about the story here. It wasn't just Michael. Saul was chosen and rejected. Samuel was rejected, the guy that chose Saul. David's brothers were passed over. David was chosen, but then he runs around in the desert trying not to be killed. Jonathan gave himself to the king and was still a victim and died with his father. Abigail and Nabal were swept up in it. Abner would be. Mephibosheth would be. What about the 600 men that ran around with David and lived in caves? And then what about the rest of Scripture? Abel is struck down. Isaac is tied to an altar. Joseph is a slave. Um, The Israelites wander. Stephen is martyred. This is the way the world is. And it takes no wisdom to see it that way. Her story is tragic, but it is only unredeemable because of her spirit. Your story might be just as tragic. What manner of violations you have suffered. What abandonment you have endured. Rejection from people who maybe gave you life or pledged their love to you. Or discouragements at work or what have you. Or illnesses. Or children that turned their back on you. Or parents that turned first. There's a thousand different ways. Do not celebrate or congratulate ourselves if we see those. General Mattis, remember Mad Dog? He said, cynicism is a form of cowardice because it lets people think they don't have to do anything about their problems. You've got to see through the right things and the, the thing that you must see through is not that your pain and and wounds are not real. You must see beyond them and realize they are not ultimate. And if you see beyond them, if you're willing to look through them, through those things, maybe you will see what she couldn't see. The priest king, right in front of her. They brought the ark of the Lord and set in its place inside the tents, This is verse 17, that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when he finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude gifts. There's so much wrong with that remarkable passage if you read Moses. Because the king's not supposed to be making offerings. Remember, we saw it last week, and then we read earlier that David's wearing the ephod. That's priestly garment. He's wearing a priestly garment, leading a priestly procession, making priestly offerings, announcing priestly benedictions, giving gifts from the altar to the people of God. Who does that sound like to you? Except David's son. The offerings he makes are burnt offerings for atonement and peace offerings for restoration. 
And he marches right up. He marches right up to her. This whole procession of redemption comes this emblem, this picture, an imperfect king with an imperfect portrait of a perfect savior comes right to her own house with atonement and restoration, with benediction and gifts. And all she can muster is contempt. Her life was tragic. And it's, it says something about your hard heart if you could read her story and not be touched by it. But the most tragic part of her life was that its tragedy blinded her from Christ. So what has it kept you from seeing? Me from seeing? Well, probably the same kind of thing. If not obscuring our entire vision of what God can do through our sorrows and how his promises are greater than them, then certainly it has obscured those colors, made them more dim, more pastel and less vibrant, maybe even grayscale. Let me end with this um, quote. This is in Ben-Hur. He's had a pretty tough life, if you know the story. Watch the movie. The book's good. Just takes a lot longer than the movie. Plus, you get to see Charlton Heston. The, um, but after his hard life, he hears that this king has come. And he sends people out. He says, look, we're going to go find out if the king has really come. His life's been changed. He's been able to see now. So he sends them out. He says, for myself and you, I will go see if the king be indeed at hand and send you a report. And then listen to this. I love this. I love this line. <laughs> Let us in the meantime live in the pleasure of the promise. That's how you live outside of your bitterness and wounds and sorrow. The pleasure of the promise of their redemption and your consolation becomes more vivid than the pleasure of the bitterness and woundedness that you and I foster. So, let us, from here forward, Together, live in the pleasure of the promise. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you to give me hope to live this way. Give us hope to live this way. The wounds here are um, grave. We would weep. We would lament. We would know anguish if we could see the wounds in the hearts around us and if they could see ours. They are very real. All we say here is that your redemption is more so. So much more so that we can have joy, even right now. 
in the pleasure of that promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.